Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine Podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. In this July 2014 episode of the podcast, we're going to focus on Ancestry.com. We will start over at the publisher's desk with Allison Dolan, who will cover the history and scope of Ancestry and talk about some of the resources provided by Family Tree Magazine that will help you get the most out of the website. And then we're going to head on over to the Genealogy Insider blog, where Managing Editor Diane Haddad will tell us the latest news about the recent outages at Ancestry and the five services that they're retiring. Then we'll combine our top tip segment and the 101 best websites for tracing your roots segment so that we'll have plenty of time to talk with Nancy Hendrickson. She's the author of the brand new book, The Unofficial Guide of Ancestry.com. And finally, in the Family Tree University Crash Course segment, Tyler Moss will be here to give us some strategies for getting more out of Ancestry.com from the upcoming course. It's called Become an Ancestry.com Power User. There's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the Publisher's Desk with Allison Dolan. Well, as we kick off this July 2014 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, I wanted to start off uh, checking in at the publisher's desk with Allison Dolan and uh, talking a little bit about what we're going to be covering in the episode today. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. You know, uh, in this episode, we're going to be focusing on Ancestry. Uh, Ancestry.com, obviously one of the biggest players in the genealogy community and one that many of our listeners, I'm sure, um, tap into upon occasion. Talk a little bit about first, you know, we're obviously devoting an entire episode to this one large entity. What kind of a footprint do they have in the genealogy industry? Well, simply put, they have the largest footprint in the genealogy industry. It's a $500 million company, which is pretty massive um, when you think about genealogy. I think some people don't necessarily realize that it's big business, but Ancestry.com is big business. Um, But it's also big business because it is such an excellent resource for the genealogy community. And um, it has a pretty wide reach in terms of the resources that we take advantage of every day between the website itself and all of the historical records on the site. Um, The company invests tens of millions of dollars every year in digitizing and indexing those records for us to use. Um, It owns Family Tree Maker software. Um, It has DNA testing services. Um, It really does have a wide footprint. And in fact, it even has um, partnerships with a lot of the other players in the industry, like FamilySearch, the LDS church. Yeah, things have changed a lot, I think, over these last 15 years. And, (laughs) And you at Family Tree Magazine, you know, the magazine's been covering this evolution um, of this company that was really breaking a lot of new ground just 15 years ago. G- give us some of your perspective on how things have changed. Sure. Well, I've seen a lot of change. Um, I've been with Family Tree Magazine going on 15 years. And at the time, it was really when genealogy was starting to gain a lot of traction and attention in terms of 
um, you know, people connecting on the internet and records starting to come to the internet. If you recall, in 2000, that was when the, um, in 2001 was when the Ellis Island website launched, the Family yeah. Search website had just recently launched, um, and Ancestry.com really was at the forefront of um, providing access to digitized records. Back then, of course, you know, really it was message boards, it was searchable databases of transcribed material or information, um, you know, not the search and instantly pull up the digitized historical record with your ancestor's name highlighted on it and that kind of thing that we <laughs> sort of take for granted today. But, you know, it was kind of in 2002 and 2003 where you started to see a little bit of an arms race between Ancestry.com and its competitors at the time in um, digitizing census records and making those available to genealogists. Mm -hmm. And um, those who have been doing this for some time may remember that um, Ancestry.com eventually did buy out its competitor at the time, Genealogy.com, and that became part of the Ancestry.com family. Yeah, exactly. Which was, I think that acquisition is a big part of, of how it's been able to grow so quickly. Mm -hmm. Also, the like you said, the partnerships, and also there are even volunteer projects they get involved with, and people can actually help grow the site in conjunction with the other partnerships they have. Now, it's funny, I have been at conferences with you at the Family Tree Magazine booth, and I've seen more than one person walk up and say, I love your software. <laughs> so exp <laughs> explain the affiliation or lack thereof between Family Tree Maker software and Family Tree Magazine. Well, in fact, that's a that's a great question because there is no um, formal affiliation between Family Tree Maker and Family Tree Magazine. We both just happen to have Family Tree in our name. Um, a lot of people think that we're owned by Ancestry.com, um, and we're not. Um, we are published right. by F&W, which is a publishing company. We don't do other things like software um, or um, records access like Ancestry.com does, but, you know, that um, we're obviously all playing in the same sandbox, and I think that our lack of a an affiliation is one thing that's an advantage when it comes to our publication because we're able to cover the company objectively. Certainly we can talk about the good things they're doing as well as, you know, cast an eye to some of the things where, you know, maybe Ancestry.com isn't the only resource that you need, and we can, um, you know, be very upfront about when you need to go look at something else and, um, you know, give an objective viewpoint on how to use the site most effectively. Exactly. In fact, coming up in this episode, I'll be talking with Diane at the Genealogy Insider blog, and, and we're going to be discussing some of the uh, discontinued products. And, you know, they have to make those business decisions along the way over these last 15 years, and not all of them are popular. Um, so it's, you know, that I think is one of the ways in which people can really stay up to speed with the changes because everything keeps changing online. That's for sure. Um, so certainly uh, genealogy insider blog with Diane Haddad is the place to go. And I know that you guys though, understand the needs of uh, the customers in terms of wanting to get the most out of their ancestry um, subscription. So what kinds of resources do you focus on and put together so that they can hopefully continue that ongoing education 
and get the most out of the product. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned the Genealogy Insider blog, and that's a great place to go for news about new resources or changes to the site when new features roll out or features get discontinued. Diane does a great job of staying on top of those changes and explaining what it really means to you as the user um, from you know the perspective of a genealogist just like you. So that's very helpful. And of course, we also like to go more in depth to help people um, use the resources from Ancestry.com. So we do educational webinars. We even have a Family Tree University course that's dedicated to becoming an Ancestry.com power user. And I think Tyler is going to talk to you a little bit later in the episode um, about that class and what you'll get out of it. We also um, are working on a guidebook to Ancestry.com. Ancestry.com, some people may or may not know that it used to publish books and a magazine, something like Family Tree Magazine does. Um, But obviously, as their business has grown, the focus has been on the online offerings and, you know, that's their strategic direction and they have um, not published books in a number of years. Um, The official guidebook to Ancestry.com is several years old. Um, It's a good resource, but we felt there was a need in the market for a more up-to-date book helping people make the most of the website, learning some tips and tricks for searching, as well as really understanding the breadth of the resources available on the site. And so that book will be published this fall, and um, we'll have an interview with the author of that book, Nancy Hendrickson, coming up later in the episode. Exactly. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, she's got a, a lot of great tricks to share. Um, and then finally, um, I'd love to let people know that you know, we do all these educational resources. And if you are a customer at our shopfamilytree.com store, um, you know that we sometimes put together bundles on um, products that are popular. And so we are planning to launch a kit of our Ancestry.com educational resources in August. It'll only be available for a limited time. So sign up for our email list and you'll be notified when it becomes available. Perfect. Tons of resources to make sure that you're getting the most out of that subscription over at Ancestry. And um, wonderful to, to chat with you about it. Thanks for kind of laying out um, the the path we're going to be taking in this episode. And, and I'm off to go talk to Nancy Hendrickson about that brand new book. So thanks so much for joining us, Allison. Thank you, Lisa. It's time for news from the blogosphere, and here to give us the scoop is the genealogy insider blogger, Diane Haddad. Hi, Diane. Hi, Lisa. Um, Well, there's been a bit of news in the last month, and probably one thing that I think a lot of people have been talking about are some of the changes going on at Ancestry. And I know on uh, June 18th, you were blogging about that. Tell us what's been going on. Yeah, well, they had... um Uh, There was a site outage for a couple of days and then also still intermittent issues with whether people can search on the site because they had uh, what's called a distributed denial of service attack, which is when outside perpetrators, they send a site so much traffic using bots, they automate so much traffic to a site that the site's overwhelmed and then legitimate customers cannot access the site. And this has been happening to um, some big sites lately. Evernote and Feedly have had these attacks and the attackers will demand a ransom in order to stop it. So, um, and I, I haven't heard whether Ancestry.com received that kind of demand or whether anything was paid, but I think they've been able to neutralize the attack, but 
I still am having every once in a while some problems on the side or it just will, you know, turn slowly for me. Yeah, it's so strange that you can take a website hostage. I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of what they've been doing. And that was right on the heels of um, Ancestry making some big announcements. So the timing was just bizarre as well. Tell us about the announcement yeah. that they made. Well, they have decided to retire some services they offered that they determined weren't in the um, the core product offerings, you know, that, that are the direction that they want to go, and also probably some lesser-used services. So those are the Y-DNA and mitochondrial DNA testing. They want to focus on their autosomal tests and the My Canvas publishing service for creating family books and photo books and posters, and then also the MyFamily.com site where people could have their family websites hosted. And that's actually, um, you know, that used to be the biggest part of Ancestry.com, you know, way back in the day. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I know that it's an ongoing process of kind of probably figuring out for them what's profitable, what's not, you know, what's makes sense in their portfolio. Um, Mm -hmm. But of course, it's always tough on the users, because you grow accustomed to things and you have your data out there. And Mm -hmm. I know you've had a lot of um, activity going on posting about that on Facebook. Tell us about some of the responses from people. Well, (laughs) with the... um the denial of service attack happening right after the retirement announcement. There were several people who, um, they were just, you know, making some clever comments on Facebook and they said, <laughs> ah, the revenge of the internet. Yeah. <laughs> Retire my family and this is what happens to you. So, and of course the one didn't have anything to do with the other. Um, you know, there are probably some conspiracy theorists out there who think maybe it did. But um, there were some people who have really active family sites on myfamily.com, and they're, they've been having some trouble downloading their data, apparently. And um, so I think Ancestry.com has been working on, um, you know, ways to help those people get all their data off the site in an organized fashion. And our blog post has some tips on um, where people can put that data, so where they can start a new family site. In my canvas, I have my wedding photo project in my canvas still. So I'm trying to decide, should I print out another copy before the retirement dates? Yeah, the challenge with that is that I know that they probably have their own kind of a platform that's unique. So they were saying you can't just download your project and upload it somewhere else. It's not that simple. Right. Yeah, on my canvas, you can print your pages at home a few pages at a time um, from your photo book. And while you cannot export a PDF from my canvas, when you go to print out your pages in your, your printer window, you might be able to select print to PDF if your printer oh. software gives you that option. So you, so you can do that and at least have a PDF version of everything you've put together. So yeah, that's kind of that's kind of a sad development for a lot of people who've you know have their family books on the site. Yeah, exactly. Well, if you want to uh, read more about this, you can do so at uh, Diane's blog. It's called "Best Facebook Comments Regarding Ancestry.com DDoS Attack," and of course that's the Genealogy Insider blog at blog.familytreemagazine.com/slash/insider. Great to talk with you. We will check in with you on the news next month. Sounds good. Thank you.
This fall, Family Tree Magazine is publishing a brand new book. It's called The Unofficial Guide to Ancestry.com, and it's packed with everything that you need to know about getting the most out of Ancestry. So I've invited the author, Nancy Hendrickson, to the podcast to give us a sneak peek and some great strategies that you can use right away. And since there's so much to cover, we're going to merge our top tip segment together with the 101 Best Website segment to give us a lot more time to cover it all. Welcome back to the show, Nancy. Oh, Lisa, thanks. I always love doing this. Well, as Allison mentioned at the top of the show, Ancestry's scope is incredible. Obviously, it's grown so much over the last 15 years. Give us a sneak peek at how you're approaching this huge subject in this brand new book. You know, Ancestry has changed an incredible amount. And I I was looking back when I first started the book, and I'm pretty sure that I was on Ancestry probably almost in the very beginning. So having seen its evolution, not only in the scope of the databases and the depth of the databases, but also just in the physical layout and the navigation and how you get around the site, and of course all their new stuff with DNA, as I approach writing the book, I really had to come up with a research problem for almost every chapter so that I could get in-depth into the ancestry system because parts of it had changed so much since I used it. So that was really great for me because it gave me a chance to write a book and solve some of my own genealogical problems along the way. That's always a big advantage, isn't it? <laughs> I, I mean, I do do the same thing getting ready just to do the podcast. And I think, oh, this is this is wonderful. Um, you know, getting access to the records is obviously um, paramount on the minds of all the genealogists. And so let's talk a little bit about searching in ancestry, you know, in each chapter, you break it down, you're kind of focusing on the different types of records in addition to other things. But the search form is typically the place we start. And that has evolved a lot over the years. And of course, it offers us a lot of options. Sometimes we don't need them all, uh, at least from the initial search. Walk us through how do you approach a search for a particular type of record for a particular ancestor? You know, maybe this goes back to my early days in genealogy. But I almost always will start with doing a search in census records rather than a broad search. You know, when you first go onto the Ancestry homepage, you can just put in somebody's name and date, and then you're going to get, you know, 10 million hits that aren't your family. So, and there are times I do that. So remind me to, to tell you when I, when I do choose to do that. But I almost always start with the federal census because it's the backbone for me of genealogy, it gets me back as many generations as possible in federal records. So once I have that, and I really encourage people to do the same thing, once I have that and I know names and dates and places, then I can actually go into the search form, the big general search form that has a lot of options, and then I know what I'm really looking for. I'm looking for birth records, marriage records, death records, military records, you know, but that census does give me a backbone from which to branch out into other records. Now, when you do use that, that basic search form at the top of Ancestry's page, there's a pull down menu for search and you can search all records, but it does let you go in and search 
different types of records like birth, marriage, death, and public member trees, military, etc. So if I'm, that's where I go next once I've got my all my census dates set up is then I'll go in and start looking for the specifics. And at that point, I'll use the pull-down navigation to go to a very specific set of record types. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that pull-down menu makes a lot of sense, particularly for new genealogists, new researchers, because it, it gives you that portal into the form, but it reminds you of kind of what the big picture subsets are. And we'll talk about uh, how to dig into those more in just a moment. But as I'm looking through, you know, where if, if you're listening, not driving in the car, pull up Ancestry.com and take a look. Um, we have the ability to checkbox uh, match all the terms exactly. And you can restrict that for the first name, the last name. Do you tend to start with the more general and kind of narrow down from there? Or do you tend to go straight in for the really narrow and then pull back a little bit if you're not getting what you want? You know, uh, there are two times I use a very general, you know, search all records, global search. If I have a surname that's really unusual, and in my case, it's Falconberry, and I pretty much know I'm related to almost anybody with that surname. And so if I've got a really unique surname, I'll, I'm, I feel pretty comfortable going in and doing a global search because I know that almost everything I find is going to be part of my family. It may not be a direct line. It's going to be a peripheral line, but I mm-hmm. know it probably does relate to me. So I use general search in that area. The second time I use the general search is if I have simply hit a brick wall and I don't have any place to go. I've tried census. I've tried birth, marriage, record. I mean, I've tried every narrow search I can think of and I'm finding nothing. Then I will go back and just do a global search and let the system pull up absolutely everything it can find. And at that point, I can start weeding out stuff that I know isn't isn't correct. Right, it kind of gives you some new leads and and maybe grabs some things that that normally were not crossing your path as you were working within specific collections. Right, and I think something that people really do need to understand, particularly if they're fairly new to ancestry, is on that general search form, that search all records form, as you said, you really don't have to put in everything. You don't have to fill in all the boxes. And what what I th- would really like people to understand, too, is our ancestors weren't as persnickety about spelling as we were, as we are. <laughs> so you really have to go in, and if, if you don't get anything with one spelling, try an alternative spelling and try a different location. Ancestry gives you the option in in the location box. If I put in a state name, it gives me the option to choose a county. And county lines changed so much over time that you can have an ancestor who lived in exactly the same spot their whole life, but that county line might have changed three different times. And so you may be looking in the county that, you know, was created 10 years after they were there. So you're not going to find them. So 
be, you know, you have to be the detective and really think like a detective. If you know or you're pretty sure somebody was somewhere and you put in a specific county location, back out and search statewide instead. So those are just kind of little tricks that you're going to learn along the way. I don't want people to be discouraged if they go into a general search and say, none of these are mine. It's possible you just have to back out and broaden your search or go in and make it more narrow. That's a great tip. And I think it's, you're right. And and to even drive that point home, right next to the location box is the year and it could be easy to assume that if you put in 1865, that the drop down menu under state, when it gives you counties, will be re- reflective of 1865. But they're not connected. No, they're not. You're looking at current county boundaries. And so um, I think we've talked about the Atlas of uh, County Boundaries before from Newberry. We have. Yeah. And the Newberry Library is a wonderful free resource to go in and check the year, find which county your folks would have been in and then go use that county if you really want to go county specific. But I'm with you. I kind of like to stay at the state level and maybe use some of these other boxes to narrow down who I'm looking at. I've also noticed that a lot of times you get so excited, you forget to scroll all the way down to that box. And the default is that all of these different records from family trees to photos to historical records, everything's checkboxed. And sometimes you can kind of cut down the noise by simply just unchecking family trees and stories and publications and just focusing on historical records. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And also by default is it gives the United States states as the collection priority. So you may not scroll down the page far enough to see that it's going to prioritize any U.S. records and maybe you're looking for a Canadian record. So yeah. scroll down and look at look at all of them. And, you know, just as a quick mention, all those checkboxes have historical records, family trees, et cetera. The family trees are actually really valuable because they're they're member uploaded family trees. And the last time I looked, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it said there were like two billion. I mean, it's a huge amount. And, of course, you know, the caveat is somebody may have put up a family tree and, and not checked all of the facts. Uh-huh. But at least it gives you a lead or a clue that you can actually go into the actual records and start looking. Yeah. Well, as you said, like with a broad search, sometimes you just need to stir up some new uh, opportunities, some new leads. And then, of course, it's always on us to do our due diligence and check for the sources and make sure that we can back up anything that we find. Now, we've been talking about the search form. Um, but I think that the card catalog is also a wonderful resource and it often gets overlooked on Ancestry. I was really happy to see that you've devoted entire chapter four to the catalog. So first, start us off by giving us an overview of what the card catalog at Ancestry covers and kind of how it's laid out. Okay. And, you know, in writing this book, I discovered that the card catalog is probably the most underutilized resource on this entire site. And as I started working through all of my own uh, ancestry problems, I went to the card catalog more than I ever went to the search form. So here's what the card catalog is. It's a catalog of all of the databases that ancestry has. And 
you can search for a database by title, by keyword, or by collection. You aren't searching for a person's name. You're searching for a database that might, that might contain their name. So let me explain how that works. Let's say that you are looking for a Civil War ancestor. You can go into the collection and say, show me all of the military databases. Well, there's over a thousand. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to go one by one searching through those. This card catalog is amazing in that you can filter down to the database that you want in many different ways. So for military, for example, I can say, only show me the databases that have pension records. Okay, so I'm actually clicking that right now. Mm -hmm. And then I can say, only show me military pension records, United States. Then I can filter down by state if I want. And what I think is really valuable is that you can also filter by date and you can filter by century from 16, 17, 18, 1900s, or you can filter by decades. So I know the Civil War was 1861 to 1865. So if I want to find a Civil War ancestor pension file, I'm going to filter to the 1860s and Let me just see what this has turned up, if my computer can move itself along here. I've gone from over 1,000 databases to 50 by doing that filtering. So I still don't want to search 50 databases. So at that point, I will go in and filter by location. I'll say, show me all the Civil War pension 1860 files from Indiana. And there are 12 databases for that. And I don't mind, I'll then go into each of those 12 databases. And and at that point, you start searching for your person. So you start with the big thing. You're searching for a database that might have your person. By the time you filter down, you actually can search for your person in specific databases. This is incredible. This has saved me so much time because I'm not getting search results that have absolutely nothing to do with my family. I can really hone in on exactly what I want. It's just an amazing um, tool on Ancestry, and I hope that the chapter that I wrote, and I I do walk people through several searches, I hope that people really get into using this, because I think they will have much more success with their family tree search. I couldn't agree more. And I think um, this kind of parallels what we were talking about with the county boundaries, that you can waste a lot of time, lose a lot of valuable research time searching for something that doesn't exist. And what you're describing in using the card catalog is really becoming more familiar as a genealogist with the collections that are available and being able to identify when it is not there. Because if you're just doing global searches from the search form, you find yourself, I don't know about you, Nancy, but I have gone down a rabbit hole or two where it all of a sudden an hour has gone by and you realize, wait a second, not only am I no longer even looking for what I was looking for, but I'm, you know, losing so much time to be able to, to focus more on the record type. And one, confirm 
that that actually exists on this database? Why look for something and spend your time going through all these names when really none of them fall within a time frame, a record collection, a type of record uh, that you're looking for or a place? Exactly. And as Nancy said, as you drill down by subject, you're going to end up landing within that comfortable search form that you're used to within that particular collection. And then you are good to go because you know you're really inside. Like I'm looking at the U.S. National Homes for Disabled Volunteered Soldiers, 1866 to 1938. If you're looking for somebody for 1945, they're not in here. And so that really makes you just spearheads your research. And I think we end up making the best use of our time. Isn't that what it's all about? And it is. And you know, to that same point, once you get to a database that you want to search, do take the time to scroll down and read what's in that database. Because as you said, it's very, it's very possible that it contains records for a period of time that your family was not there. So don't waste time by, by not being aware of what's in a database. Uh, lastly, in terms of the card catalog, there are databases that aren't name specific, and you'll find a lot of those in things that have to do with pictures. There's this wonderful collection of uh, postcards on history, mm-hmm. uh, which I absolutely love. And yeah. I, I think there's a picture of one of the postcards in the book that I that I got. But if when you search the pictures category, you you can search by um, place name and you know like you can search your hometown and and get kind of a cool postcard from the US historical postcard collection or mm-hmm. or a picture of a ship that your ancestor might have been on uh civil war photos i like civil war photos too because you may you may never find a picture of your civil war ancestor or his regiment but you can find pictures of like indiana artillery so you have a sense of what, if he was an artillery person, you have a sense of what his unit might have looked like. Yeah. So uh, I love using them for that because it's a great addition to your family tree book, scrapbook, your blog, wherever you want to use that photo. So uh, use the card catalog. It is amazing what you can find. It is. And you will find it if you go to Ancestry.com, hover over search, the drop down menu uh, pops up. And the last item is card catalog. So click on that and uh, you'll be discovering all these amazing things. It's it's a great reminder that there is so much more than just digitized uh, birth, death and marriage records or census records. Uh, the depth is amazing. And a lot of that comes from all the partnerships that Ancestry does. So, um, wow. I know everybody out there listening is going, okay, now I got to put this on pause because I want to go run to Ancestry and just do all the things that Nancy was talking about. You're going to get so much more of them in the brand new book. And again, the book is called The Unofficial Guide to Ancestry.com. And it is coming out this fall of 2014. We're very excited, Nancy. And thank you so much for giving us this sneak peek. We appreciate it. Oh, it was great. Thanks, Lisa. In this Family Tree University Crash Course segment, Tyler Moss is back to give us some strategies for getting more out of Ancestry.com. And that comes from the upcoming course. It's called Become an Ancestry.com Power User. Welcome back, Tyler. Thanks for having me, Lisa. 
Okay, so lots of folks out there who are listening, they're using Ancestry on a regular basis to search for records for their ancestors. But of course, there's always something we can do better. So what's what's one of the key areas? And let's start with search, because that's something that obviously applies to everybody. And it's um, got so many different nuances that we don't always take advantage of all the options available to us. Um, do you have some search tips from the course? I certainly do. And of course, as you said, when it comes to Ancestry.com, search is kind of the foundation upon which we build, you know, everything else that is involved with what we do on Ancestry. As we like to say, you know, the more strategies you use to perform a search, the more successful you'll be at finding the records for your ancestors. So uh, a couple of the strategies that the course outlines to keep in mind are starting, for instance, with basic search for a broad view of potential matches and kind of narrowing from there. Or, for instance, also refining your search to, um, you know, going to advanced search and, and refining through limiting dates, looking at specific collections, and adding additional data. So that way you can kind of narrow your focus before you even start going through search results. So that way you don't have, you know, a hundred pages to dig through to find the information you're looking for. Well, and that really brings the idea to the forefront that search is not a one-time deal. You don't like, it's not like doing a slot machine where you put in the quarter and you pull the lever and hope for the best. It's really a multi-step process. So we ought to think of it as something that we do in several steps, starting like you said, with the broad search, and then looking at the results we're getting and then narrowing down from there. So uh, we can do that with what time frame? Absolutely. With time frame, with like, uh, specific collections, with locations, for instance. Um, another thing we even talk about is, you know, looking for collateral relatives with search instead of just looking at your direct line relatives. So that way, you know, you're looking up names you might not normally look for. And through those records, you find, you know, you're looking at through these collateral individuals, you could end up accessing your own ancestors in kind of a sideways or lateral way. I love doing that when I'm stuck yeah. on somebody, you know, when when the person that I'm trying to find is just not popping up, you know, going to their sister, or their brother, or a cousin, and turns out, oh, they're in the same neighborhood, but somebody misspelled their name, you know, or something like that. So they can be a wonderful little lead back around to the right person. Absolutely. There's just so many layers to it. Great. So we can do it by collecting. And in that case, you know, we could say what, just down to newspapers, just down to a particular census, you know, the 1880 census or whatever. Um, and then there are wild cards. And I know they get into that in this course. Tell us a bit about using wild cards in Ancestry. Well, I think that... <laughs> Wild cards are best for a few different things, but one of the best ones is especially when it comes to names. Um, just because, as we all know, whether it's through, you know, transcription errors or it's just through, um, you know, as a name kind of evolves and goes from one country to another or even one state or county level to another, it can be written differently, it can be... Um, perceived differently, and you can have, you know, a name such as, I don't know, Bell or something like that, which could be spelled B-E-L-L. It could at one point be spelled B-A-E-L-L. And, you know, you're looking for all these different spellings sometimes, because that'll, you know, give you access to these records where it is misspelled, and you might not have even known that record was there. 
So, you know, you use these um, wild cards, which include, you know, the question mark, for instance, putting a question mark between the B and the LL, which would help you find all these different letters that could potentially be in that space. And we discuss using those to broaden your search in a way um, to find these records that you wouldn't normally be able to stumble upon because of transcription error or something else along those lines. So the question mark can hold the spot of a letter, or even maybe two letters in there, that um, are questionable. And you can work with the ones that you know are there. And oftentimes, like you say, that can be the consonants. Uh, it's, it's like when we go back to the old sound decks, and how the census was organized, and you could find people by using the sound decks was really, really about the sounding of the word uh, versus the specific exact spelling. And the wild cards kind of help you finagle that a little bit. So I think that's a great tip. And it's one sometimes we forget about as we're putting those names in there, or we just keep trying different spellings, which can create an awful lot of different searches. We can narrow those searches down to just using the wild cards to take the spot. And then the search itself can do all those different gyrations in one swoop. Uh, that's a great tip. Well, these are all things that we can use right away. And I know that Lisa also is teaching the course coming up again in July of 2014. So this is the perfect time to get back into Ancestry.com and, and make sure even if you've been using it for a while, that you're using all the features. And wow, Lisa knows it inside and out. So we'll have the link in the show notes to get you over to the course. And again, it's called Become an Ancestry.com Power User, something we'd all love to be. Thank you so much, Tyler, for coming in and sharing some of the tips. Sounds great. Thanks for having me back. Thanks so much for joining me for this July 2014 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items for you until we meet here again next month. First, be sure and check out Nancy Hendrickson's new book, The Unofficial Guide to Ancestry.com. You can pre-order the book, which is coming out in October of 2014 at shopfamilytree.com, and I'll have a link directly to it for you in the show notes. And speaking of the show notes, go to familytreemagazine.com slash podcast. And there you will find the show notes for this episode, which will include information and website links for everything that we talked about on today's episode. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I invite you to visit me over at my website, genealogygems.com, where you can listen to two free podcasts, the Genealogy Gems podcast and Family History Genealogy Made Easy. And like this show, they are also available for free through iTunes. So until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. <laughs>